Well, let's have a look at these four questions. So the four questions we're going to look at are, are, first of all, what is this letter about? And then why does Paul write to the Ephesians? How is the purpose of the letter fulfilled? And how does Paul want the church to respond? Or how does he want us, God's people, to respond? Now, to answer these questions, I'm going to take uh, four words that are found in verses 1 and 2. Um, and the reason I do that is because quite often in a, in a letter, in an epistle, how, uh, the words that are used right at the very beginning are, are often hints at where the letter is going. Um, and hopefully that will become clear as we go through. But let me give you these four words that we're going to use. So to answer the question, what is the letter about? We're going to look at the Apostle Paul and who he is and why, you know, what, what, what his desires are. And then we're going to look at why does Paul write to the Ephesians, and we're going to see this from the word faithful. And then we're going to, we're going to see how is the purpose of the letter fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled through grace. And how does Paul want the church to respond well in peace or through peace? Now, that's just for your notes, and obviously I'll be able to, or hopefully I'll be to explain this to you as we go through, and hopefully it'll become clear. Let's get into it, shall we? Let's get started. Let's have a look at the very first question. What is this letter about? And that's point we'll see there from my theme. We're going to see that Paul, the writer of this letter, wants the church in Ephesus and every Christian thereafter to know God and to know his plan for his people. Okay? That's what this letter is about. It's a letter from an apostle to the God's people, so they would know God better and know what God's plan is for his people. Now, like I said, we see this throughout the letter, um, but it's hinted at right at the very first verse. And if you look at there, the very first line of the letter, you'll see that Paul, this man Paul, is connected to the office of apostle, and he's connected to the will of God. Do you see that? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, an apostle, if you're not aware of that word, an apostle is a a person who has seen the risen Lord, and it was an office in the church which is now finished, closed. No one else has seen the risen Lord. And these people, the apostles, were commissioned by Jesus to teach his people, teach his people, And Paul, you'll see there, by the will of God, Paul was chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Again, if you're not familiar with that word, the Gentiles is a word used to describe uh, the the, the group of people who were not traditionally part of God's people. They were not Israelites or Jews. They're us. We are technically Gentiles. And Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he is writing to them so that we might know God and know his plan for us. Now, this is made clear to us in a, in a number of passages throughout uh, the letter, and you can take a note of those, or um, these will be on the website if, if I move on too quickly and you don't get a chance to write them down. But we're not going to read these all, you'll be glad to know, but for the sake of time, let's read one of them, shall we? Let's read the very first one. We read it earlier in our service, but let's read it again. Have a look at verse 16 of chapter 1. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that 
you might know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his, in glory, his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now keep your eyes on those verses because you'll see there what Paul wants for his readers. It's clear to us, isn't it? He tells us, doesn't he? He says in verse 17 that he wants his readers, he wants us to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know God better. Now this, we're going to be studying these verses obviously later in our series, but let me just say quickly that Paul's not talking about a special insight or an extra revelation, but he's talking about an increased understanding of God's Word. An understanding of God's Word, and particularly this letter, so that we might know God better. We might grow in our knowledge of God. He also says, suddenly in verse 18, he says that he prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, or that light would shine on onto our hearts so that we might see the hope that God has called us to. And we're going to see what this hope is. I've called it there in my point, his plan. But what is this plan? Well, it's a cosmic eternal plan. And we're going to see as we study the letter that it's a plan that begins in heaven. And we read that earlier at the start of chapter 1. That actually it occurs outside of time with our, our predestination, with our election. But it's a plan that engages the world, the flesh. And if we know Ephesians well, you'll know what chapter 6 says. It finishes with the devil. And when you think about this, I hope you realize that, that Paul's prayer for Christians, well, it's really quite huge, isn't it? Think about it. Paul wants you in this next few weeks as we study this letter to, to go away knowing God better and having a clearer understanding of his plan, not just for you individually, but for us as a body of people. But commentators largely agree that, that the, the letter is, is written accordingly. We'll come across this, I'm sure, in our studies, but the first three chapters are about God and, and are full of doctrine. As the second half, four to six, is much more about God's plan and therefore much more practical. But why is this helpful for us to know? Why is this important for us to say right at the very beginning? Well, it's, it's good to know what we're going to be learning about, isn't it? It's good for you to know that when you come here that you're supposed to be learning more about God and more about his cosmic plan for his people. And in some ways, if, if we fail to do that in our teaching, well, then you can pick us up on that, can't you? And say, well, I didn't learn anything new about God tonight, and uh, we'll have to go back and, and rewrite our sermons. But it's also important, to, and the reason it's important is because, well, I'll, I'll let you into a little secret about what's coming ahead. We're going to be studying some pretty difficult things we're going to be studying difficult concepts. I've already mentioned an election, and we're going to be thinking about election later in this sermon. There's difficult concepts coming up. But when we come to those concepts, whenever we look at them, we need to know that, that Paul's reason for writing them isn't to bore us, it isn't to bamboozle us, but it's to build us up. We need to remember that Paul is writing these things not to make us more intellectual, but to strengthen our faith in God and enable us to live out our calling as part of his grand, eternal, 
cosmic plan. That said, as I often seem to be finding myself saying these days, uh, a sort of a caveat, um, I sort of built this way up, haven't I, of what's lying ahead, and I'm wary that I may not be able to fulfill that in my teaching. But if there's something that we're not covering well enough, or if Alistair and I, or Alex, whoever's teaching, we don't have time to get into to something, for some reason we don't make it clear enough, I encourage you to speak to us. We don't want to leave you bamboozled. We don't want to leave you confused. We want you to know God better. We want you to know his plan for your life. At this point, I'm going to plug adult Bible class again. You'll be getting sick of this. But um, next Sunday morning, we're recommencing our adult Bible class. And we're actually going to be dealing with a number of these topics. We're, we're going to deal with election and predestination and the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And I encourage you to come along. You can ask your questions. You can contribute to discussion. And uh, hopefully together we'll be able to dig a little bit deeper into some of these topics. Well, there's our first question. What is this letter about? Well, it's written by the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, so that Christians, not just Ephesians, Christians might know God better and might know his plan for us. Let's move on and ask our, our second question, which is why does Paul write to the church in Ephesus? Now, it might seem like we've covered this uh, already in our, our first point, why? You know, we seem to have covered that question. But the emphasis here on this question is not on the content, but on the context. The question is, why does Paul write to the church in Ephesus? In other words, why does this church need to hear what the apostle has to say in this particular letter? Why did he feel the need to write these things to this group of people? Now, to help us see this, we're going to use uh, the description of them in verse 1. Have a look down at verse 1 because you'll see, uh, we'll see why Paul wants them to trust God and trust his, and, and his plan for his people. See how he describes them in verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You see what, how Paul describes them? He describes the believers in this city as the faithful ones or the believing ones. But as before, and as in our first point, this doesn't give us the full picture, but it hints, doesn't it? It hints at the context in which the church finds itself. Now, normally, when it comes to understanding the context of a book, we, we, we would turn wisely to commentaries. And, and if you were to turn to a commentary about the town or the, the city of Ephesus, you would learn that it was a, a large coastal city in which there was much trade and, and wealth and influence. You would also learn that it's where the, the great temple of Artemis uh, was, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As you read about all this, you'd, I'm sure you'd find it tremendously interesting. And you would go on to read that the, the, the commentators would surmise from all this information that the church was probably under pressure. In fact, you would probably read that it was under pressure to forget about this Jewish carpenter who was crucified on a tree in some distant land. Forget about him and worship the great Artemis, or worship Caesar, or worship wealth. Now, let me encourage you at this stage not to do that. Let me say, at least not initially, we want to use commentaries, and if you're interested in, in a commentary, speak to, speak to myself or Alistair or Alex, and we will gladly point you in, in, in the right direction. But let me encourage you, as servants of God's Word, to rely primarily on God's Word, 
You see, God has given us all the information he needs. And so let, let me give you a whole list of, of passages which help us understand the context of this letter. Now, there's lots there, and I could give you many more, but let me read two of them with you. Let's read the first and the last. Let's have a look down at verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 19b to 23. See what it says there, 19b? So he's just, Paul's just prayed to them that they would know the power of God. Why? What power? Well, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above what? All rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Question, why do they need to be reminded that Jesus is this powerful? Why did Paul not just say, the power of Christ which raised him from the dead, or the power of Christ, the Son of God? He emphasizes it, doesn't it? Christ is powerful. But also, let's have a look at the very last thing Paul writes in this letter. He says, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus. See how he describes them? With an undying love. Remember how he started? He says, I'm writing to you here faithful, and I want you to continue with an undying love. If you were to read the rest of these verses, you would read very similar things. You would read about the power of Christ time and time again. You would read about his authority you would read about how he has head over everything, always. And you would read that the people in Ephesus are called to be faithful. You see there in my point, the theme, that's what we're seeing. Paul writes them. He writes to them to remind them of these things so that they would trust in God and trust in his plan for his people. Now, I hope you see how this is helpful. And the, the reason this is helpful is because when you read a commentary, you think, well, those poor Ephesians back there, they must have had it really tough. And I'm sure what Paul said to them was really helpful. I'm really glad he wrote to them. Because that's not how God word, God's Word operates. God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's not just for one group of people in one particular place and time. It is for all His people everywhere, forever. And you see... This is Paul's point. It's not just that Paul, Jesus is powerful and has authority over the people in Ephesus. He has power and authority today too. You see, don't we live in a culture that questions that? Don't we live in a culture that dismisses the person of Jesus Christ? Aren't we a part of a global church that, particularly in the West, is beginning to ignore the authority of Christ? Don't you find yourself surrounded by fear and fear, God-fearers? Don't you begin to wonder, is Christ really powerful? Are not the gods of this world becoming more and more influential? You see, God's word is timeless. And Paul writes to you and to me and to the church, not just here in Ephesus, but to us in Rich Hill, to encourage us to keep trusting God and to keep trusting his plan for his people.
Let's move on to our third question. And our third question is, how is the purpose of the letter fulfilled? And at this point, we see how God, God enables his people to remain faithful through grace. And as before, we, we see this not only in our second verse, which says, he says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, but throughout the letter. It is this theme of grace. That's the word that we're hanging this on. And you'll see there a whole number of, of references as before. Again, we don't have time to go through these, and we don't really even have time to, to read any of them again. But I want to draw your attention to the very first one there, verses, um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And we read that earlier in our service. And uh, if you look down at your Bibles, you'll perhaps be able to recall what those verses were about. Um, you'll maybe remember that it's sort of one long list of blessings. In fact, uh, you maybe picked this up even whenever I was reading it, um, but it's so long that the reader runs out of breath. That was Paul's original purpose. I read somewhere that there was sort of no punctuation in his original letter. It was just piling on top of one on top of another, this blessing after blessing after blessing. And Paul wants the reader, when he's reading this, just to run out of puff. I can say no more. God's blessings are just so many that I just can't get any more out. And that was Paul's purpose. He wants to tell the reader, this is, he wants to encourage the reader, to tell the reader of what God has done for them. And the very heart of this passage is grace. Let's have a look at one verse in particular. Let's have a look at verse 7. You see what it says there? He says, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. There's God's will, God's knowledge, God's purpose again, isn't it? It was God's will and God's purpose to lavish upon us grace. Grace is at the heart. I'd love to go through this passage, and we're going to go through it in the next couple of weeks. That's what we're getting to next. Blessing after blessing after blessing. What does verse 3 say? Every kind of spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Everything you can think of or imagine that is there, you have it in Christ. And you have it because of God's grace. Famously in chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul continues to talk about God's grace. He talks about God's grace in chapter 1. Then he prays for them. He talks about God's, Jesus' power and authority. Then he talks about grace again. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, he tells us that grace is a gift of God given to those who are, who are dead, dead in their sins, dominated by the devil, dead, dominated, and damned, damned. That's what he says. He says it's completely unmerited. It's a gift of God. And it is one of the main attributes of this letter. Because it is grace that we hear about, read about time and time again. That reminds us, it reminds us that we are able to remain faithful to God. We're able to fulfill our purpose that he has called us to. Because of him. Not because of us. Grace is, at the heart of this doctrine, we've mentioned it already, is this doctrine of election. And I know we're going to come across this. This is one of the sort of tricky topics that we have to deal with in the next couple of weeks. But I want us to see right at the very beginning that this doctrine is not here to divide us, but it's here to assure us. Assure us that God has done everything for us, that we've done nothing. And it's because of him and him alone that we're saved. 
It's because him and him alone that we get to know God better. It's because of him and him alone that we get to know his plan for our lives. Now, as a college, actually, one of the things that stood out for me that I constantly remember, one of the lecturers said is that the lecturers were telling us about their experience in ministry. And he said, and he says, in my experience, what God's people need most is assurance. In my very short time in ministry, I find his experience rings true. And that's what is at the heart of this letter. It's a, it's a letter of assurance. Paul wants to assure God's people that because of God's grace, nothing can take away what he has given us. I think that's great news for us because, well, many of us I know feel weak in our faith. Many of us doubt the truths of Christianity. In fact, some of you I know feel bad for doubting Christianity. Some of you I know don't feel worthy to be a Christian. Or you're worried that you're not going to persevere. Or you're worried that your children are not going to persevere. Well, Paul writes this letter, and he writes this letter to the context of people who need to be reminded of God's power, God's grace, to remind us who God is and His great plan for us, a plan that began before the world began and will conclude when Jesus returns. And so if you are feeling your faith beginning to falter or you feel the pressures of this world or the pressures of your sin, well, this is a letter for you. They're normal experiences, I'll say that to you. Everyone feels these things. You don't need to live in Ephesus to feel them. But you can come and hear this great letter taught and be reminded of God's grace. Let's look at our final question. How does Paul want the church to respond? Well, God wants his people to be united in peace. Well, let's have a look at some of these passages. And you'll see there that actually I've, I've given... This is the, the longest list of references. And don't worry, like I said, these slides will be online in due course, and you'll be able to take them down shortly. Now, this, the reason this is the longest list of references is because this is probably the biggest theme in the letter. But it's actually the, 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 my shortest point, you'll be glad to know. And the reason for that is because this theme is, is, is rather complex. But we use the word peace, not simply because it's included in verse 2, but because peace gets to the very heart, the very heart of this letter. Now, if you were to read some of, these, some of these passages, you will see that they talk about peace with God and peace with one another. And if you go home and, and read the letter, you would see that. It's, that's what it's all about. It's, it's the overarching theme of this letter. But to help us understand what or what this really works at, we need, to see, we need to see this. We need to see what Paul is writing for. He's writing to tell us about God and his plan for his people. And peace is the thing that connects these two things. So that's what we've been talking about, God's plan, knowing God better and knowing God's plan, and peace is the thing that connects them. We see that God saved his people by grace, that he's reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God. That's what uh, the second half of chapter 2 is all about. And he does this, he does this for one reason. Let's have a look at one verse that I've put up there. It's chapter 3, verse 10. Let's have a look at chapter 3, verse 10. See what he says? He says, God's intent was that now through his church, 
through peace with God and peace with one another, the body of Christ, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. My question I've written there, how does Paul want the church to respond? We see this is how he wants them to respond. He wants them to show off his wisdom to the whole cosmos. Isn't that what this verse says? He says says his will, his plan for God's people is that they would be at peace with him and peace with one another so that the whole cosmos, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms would know about God and they would glorify him. This is, you'll see, this is why we're not going into this in depth because it's pretty big theology. It's the doctrine of the church, really. It's why we exist as this body of people. It's what does it mean for us when we gather together like this? But it has huge ramifications for us. It tells us that when we're together and how we relate to one another isn't just for our benefit or for the benefit of the world. It's to proclaim the glory of God to all creation, physical and spiritual, for throughout all eternity. And I think this is really important and it's really important whenever we get to the second half of this letter. Remember at the very earlier in the sermon I said that the letter is kind of divided into two chapters. One and three is primarily about doctrine and, and four to six is much more practical. It's about God's plan. Well, I think we are at risk, or I've seen this done, and I hope we don't do that here. When we get to four, chapters four and six, we kind of jettison what we've learned in one to three because one to three is the foundation. And one to three reminds us, it tells us, we've just read it, why we do the things we do. That's really important. Have a look at chapter 5 and 6, for instance, there. You'll see that Paul gets really practical. He, he tells us how to behave as husbands and wives, how he tells us how to behave in the family between parents and children, how to behave in our workplace between slaves and masters. And when we get to that, we can say, tell me what to do. But we need to remember chapter 3, verse 10. We need to remember that God has brought us into peace with him and peace with one another so that the whole cosmos will know about him, will see his wisdom, and that we will glorify him. I feel like I may have bamboozled you with that last one, and I'm wary of that, and I was scared of writing that point, but that's one of the major themes of this letter. It's a letter about how we exist as a body of people. That is God's will for us, not to live as individuals. And we exist to glorify him, to show off his wisdom, his goodness, his salvation, his grace, not just to this world's, but to the spiritual world too. We've run out of time, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but in many ways that's okay, because tonight was not get into every detail. beginning, I had an unenviable task of trying to do that, and I hope that I haven't left you more puzzled. If anything, I've, I've left you intrigued about what the letter actually says, and hope that you will come while some of these themes played out. In There's many, many more things better, and I read it in Psalm 19 at the very beginning. Sweeter than honey, even honey. That's our prayer here together. Well, let me pray for us, and then Alistair is going to come up, and we're going to enjoy our communion together. So let me pray. I keep asking that the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Well, let's respond to God's word by standing and singing the words alone.